The title for today's message is Busy About Your Own Business. And that includes both parts of what Paul is trying to say in this passage. This section here is the last major piece of ethical instruction in the Thessalonian epistles. There's been a lot of encouragement and blessing that Paul has given. There's been several points of theology, especially related to eschatology that Paul has given. And there have been a few points of ethical instruction. In the last few weeks, we've been seeing prayers and benedictions that the authors have given. And this is the last major point that he wants to make. And the subject is idleness. This was hinted at in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 14, where it said, admonish the idol. Paul, Silas, and Timothy only mentioned it in the last book. But it seems now as they wrote the next one, it was enough of a problem. They wanted to address it fully. And as we're going to see, this is not just idleness as we think of it, but it's disorderliness that manifests itself in laziness and meddling in other people's affairs. This passage teaches us the importance of self-discipline, the importance of hard work, very practical lesson. It also teaches the importance of looking to your own life. And we've hit this before in 1 Thessalonians, that God's given you a life to live, and you must live that life and not the one that the person next to you is living. Being a busybody can be a great cover for idleness and stagnation. It's an interesting connection that he makes. Because when you're a busybody, when you're meddling in other people's affairs, you look really busy because there's a lot of activity going on. But what that can cover up is that in your own life, you are, in fact, very lazy. You're stagnating in your walk with the Lord. And we must confront that attitude. This is actually the command that they're going to give, that the church must not allow this to continue. So this is not maybe a typical Sunday message on sin to address, but it's an important one. And I think it's one that might hit close to home for some of us. So let's open up now reading verse 6, and then we'll continue as we go through the message. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. So my friends who are in the inductive Bible study class, you know that a word like now signals the beginning of a new section, that we're moving on from what was said before into something else. And he says they have a command in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's pretty significant. When Paul the Apostle and Silas and Timothy say, we have a command for you in the name of Jesus Christ, you ought to pay attention. And he says to keep away from idle brothers in the church. To keep away, to not spend time with, to not ignore maybe, but certainly not to become a close intimate of somebody who is idle in the church. Verse 14, which we're not going to get to today, explains the motive behind that. It says that he may be ashamed. Why do we keep away? Because we don't like them? No, because we're trying to shame them. This is the New Testament approach to church discipline. Jesus said in Matthew 18, 17, you know the whole sequence, go to your brother with his sin, then take a few other brothers with you to confront him in that sin, then bring it before the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, he says, let him be to you like a tax collector. To 
Keep away from. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, there was a man engaged in a grievous sin in the Corinthian church. And Paul said, you are to put him out of fellowship. He says, deliver him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul may be saved. The removal of fellowship in the church is less about how we typically think of it when we hear the word excommunication, where we say, we revoke your salvation. The church does not have that authority. Salvation comes from God alone. What we are doing is we are removing spiritual protection from that person. And you, if you don't believe in the supernatural, this isn't going to make a lot of sense to you. What we believe when we must withdraw fellowship from somebody is that by our prayers and by our company, there is a protection that comes over a person's life. And when you remove that from them, when you remove them from the church, this is very somber when this has to be done. You pray that they are allowed to get a mouthful of their sin, even to see their life ravaged, that they might return to the Lord in repentance. And that's always the goal of Christian discipline, is reconciliation. It's very difficult to do church discipline now, because if you tell somebody you're no longer welcome here, they say, that's fine, and they skip on down the road and they go to another church. And I have seen in many cases, to maybe boost your spirits a little bit, that very often, good churches are willing to partner with each other in this, where if somebody that we are trying to bring around to return to the Lord and repent, if they go on to the church down the road, I've seen many times you call that church and you say, listen, this person is running from the discipline of the church. They're running from their responsibility. And I've seen other pastors tell that person, you can't stay here. You need to go back. So we want to talk negatively about the church. I've seen the churches come together in this way many times. So we ought to be grateful for that. But it's always with the goal towards reconciliation. So specifically, though, this is for the one who is walking in idleness, as the ESV translates it. This is the Greek word ataktos, ataktos. And it's interesting that it's translated idleness because literally a is a negation. Taktos relates to the word for orderly. So this is without order. It means disorderly. It means unruly. I like that word. It means that they're making trouble. They're not following the standard. So this word itself is not specifically about laziness. In fact, it was used in, in much of the literature of the time to describe chaos. The Jewish philosopher Philo used this word to describe creation before the Lord said, let there be light, right? When the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, unformed and void. Josephus used this word to describe a disorderly retreat when an enemy was beaten back in battle. So it can have that sense of chaotic. So it doesn't specifically mean laziness, but as we go through this passage, you'll see that that is the issue that Paul was addressing, which makes for an interesting connection. What does disorderly have to do with being idle and lazy? Well, quite a bit, as we're going to see. Idleness leads to all manner of disorder in God's church. Don't you know this? Folks need stuff to do. When you don't have something to do, you're going to get in trouble. <laughs> you're going to start looking for something to do. You're going to make trouble. And we don't always do it on purpose, but maybe you just start asking questions that you know are going to lead to trouble and you start pressing the issue. You know, if you're spending time on the internet and you don't have any reason to be on the internet and you're just kind of scrolling around, it's not going to end well. That's not a positive situation, is it? We say that idle hands are the devil's workshop. And it's true. People ought to be busy. As, as a former youth pastor, I'm a big believer in teenagers wearing themselves out. 
well, I don't want them to be too worn out and stressed. Yeah, you do. You want them to be exhausted. All of us should be. We should be, you know, you should be working. You should be having hobbies. You should be having a social life. You should be going to church. I'm not talking about, you know, beating people down. But I have found when I'm not busy, that's when I get into trouble. My friends, same way. Proverbs 10 verse 4 says, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. The book of Proverbs is replete with instructions to work hard and to avoid sloth as a sin. You ever watch one of those National Geographic documentaries where they start looking at sloths? You, you almost get stressed out watching them move. It's like, hurry up, come on. I remember, I forget which one I saw, but it was, we're, we're going to watch this sloth make its way across this island. And it was agonizing, right? So it's a perfect description of idleness, that word sloth. People that don't want to move. They don't want to work hard. And the book of Proverbs says that that causes poverty. But the opposite of that, the hand of the diligent makes rich. And the New Testament, of course, carries this theme along. We're reading it right here. That God's people are to be hardworking and not idle. And I just expressed the relationship between idleness and being disorderly, as we saw. That one leads to the other. Even though one sounds like a lack of activity, you're going to do something. And it's not usually good. I can identify six kinds of laziness that we face. Maybe you could come up with a few more. You'll have some fun in the home fellowships thinking about that, maybe. But I, I can see six types of laziness that you maybe want to take notes and write down that we can apply to this passage. And they all start with P, so isn't that clever? <laughs> number one, number one, this is personal laziness. This is what we usually think of when we hear the word idle, when we hear the word lazy, when we hear the word slothful. This is how the Old Testament would say being a sluggard. Isn't that a good word? Why to bring that word back? It's got slug in it. <laughs> being a sluggard. The person who refuses to work hard, that will not work hard, will not do anything with any kind of skill or ability. The person who cannot or will not get up on time. Or show up on time. Oh, see how quiet it got all of a sudden? That was great. The person who refuses to put forth good effort in their pursuits, whatever they are. And the person who is personally lazy, as I'm defining it here, they are often what you might call a binger. We use that word to binge watch something or to binge eat on something. This is very often a characteristic of the lazy person. Somebody who isn't doing anything, is sitting around, watching TV, just reading or book or whatever it is, and sooner or later, they're going to begin to binge on food. They'll binge on media. They'll sit there consuming everything they can find on Facebook or watch a million YouTube videos and keep watching the Netflix show until it says, are you still watching because you've been watching for a long time? And the person that is obsessed with gossip, they're not doing anything, but they're really looking at what other people are doing. And we ought to be ashamed of ourselves to be personally lazy. It is not godly. This is the first one, personal laziness. Number two is professional laziness. This is sloth applied specifically to the workplace. Because there are folks that maybe when they're home, they're, they got stuff going on, but at work, they're lazy. This is the person that does not work while they are at work. You ever know that person? I hope you're not that person, but you know that one? They're there and they're clocked in and they might look busy, 
but nothing's going on. They take all day or many days to get a simple task done, and they won't get anything done unless their boss is right over their shoulder yelling in their face. They cut corners. They don't do the job right. They do it well enough to be able to stop working. They're always working for that next break. They're always dragging their feet. This is also maybe somebody who is stuck in a job that they hate and that they could get out of, but they refuse to put forth the effort to gain a new skill, to go online and see where other openings might be, or even just to apply themselves in the job they are in to move up the ladder. This is often the person who has a martyr complex. Well, I, I work so hard and I can never get ahead and nobody cares about me and a new hire comes in and you say, well, you know, you're not going anywhere in this job and that, that boss is awful. And then that person gets promoted and I got, see, he, he's a cheat and he's a liar. I've been here for this many years and he's not promoted me ever. And they remain stuck. Professional laziness. Number three, this is prideful laziness. This is interesting. It's different than the normal attitude that just says, I don't want to get up today. A pridefully lazy person believes that they are better than everybody else around them. They're smarter, they're maybe more skilled, and the system or the job that they're in is beneath them. And therefore, they do not deign to work hard. Can you see the subtle difference? It's not that they don't want to. They say, I'm too good for this job. I'm too good for this family. You're lucky to have me. I shouldn't have to put forth any effort in this relationship. And it's remarkable to me that you will meet people. And I've worked a whole number of jobs. But I can think particularly when I worked at Subway for a while. I met people in that job that were broke that were in their 40s and 50s working the same job I was working in high school, and they were the most arrogant people you've ever met. They were so full of themselves, and they were talking about how I never was so foolish as to go to college and take out a bunch of student loans. I, my last boss was just a, a big jerk, so I told him exactly what I thought of him to his face. I'm not going to let that happen to me. And you're sitting there thinking, what in the world do you have to be prideful about? You're so arrogant. You're so full of yourself. A lot of times these were people that maybe did very well in school, or maybe they were really good at sports and they didn't have to work real hard, so they got this idea about themselves, and now it carries over to the rest of their lives, and they don't see the need to put forth effort. That's prideful laziness. Number four, I'm getting maybe closer to home now. This is pious laziness. Now we're in the church. Now we're talking about Christians. This kind of sluggard puts no effort into their Christian life. Maybe they work hard elsewhere. They work hard at work. They work hard at their play. But they refuse to do the things that you must do to maintain a vibrant Christian life. They refuse to pray. Or if they do, it's yub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub, moving right along. They refuse to read the Bible, but they're more than happy to tell you what the Bible means, I have found. They refuse to attend church regularly because the church is just this or that. They refuse to volunteer to help with people. They're never going to be approached by anybody in the church for help or for ministry. They don't put forth any effort. And maybe they have a little bit of that last attitude we talked about where they're cynical about the Christian faith. And they say, well, yeah, there's really nothing to that. It's important to believe, but I'm not going to put forth any kind of effort. And then they maybe will wonder why they're not getting the same kind of vibrancy out of their walk with Jesus as the rest of us. It's a shallow faith. And very often, this person's faith is shallow, and they don't care. Number five, I'm going to pick on myself here, hopefully not myself, but my crowd, is pastoral laziness. 
I'm going to pick on pastors for a minute here, although this can certainly apply broadly. This is a guy who mooches off the church. He maybe is the pastor or the elder or the bishop or the deacon, and he's making money off the church, using it as his piggy bank, as his mini kingdom. It's his way of being in charge of people. And he's not going to put forth the effort to shepherd the flock as he ought to. He's not going to put forth effort maybe to even grow and expand the ministry. He's not going to put forth effort to study the word because he knows he doesn't have to. All he's got to do is get up, say the things that people want to hear, and move right along. He likes getting applause. He likes being called pastor. Maybe he'll insist that you call him pastor. But he won't touch the real work. There are a lot of people like this. They're in ministry and they've got titles, but they're lazy. They're sluggards. And they see the church as the way for them to work the least amount possible and still make a living for themselves. And there are people like this at every level of the church. It's not just pastors. And maybe it's not just about money. Maybe it's about popularity. Who knows? And number six is what I will call prophetic laziness. But you should probably put prophetic in quotes here. Prophetic laziness. This one's a doozy. And this may be what the Thessalonians were dealing with. These are people who believe that because the end is near, because the rapture could be coming at any minute, why should I do any work? Why should I be about the Lord's business if he's just coming back anyway? Why evangelize? This nation is so broken, the only thing that could possibly happen is the rapture anyway. Why go to church? They're all corrupt, and I don't want to be around those people when the rapture comes. Why love people? God's already determined what he's going to do. I've heard all these attitudes before. They say, it's all over anyway, so why put forth any effort? Why should I commit myself to the Lord or join myself to this ministry endeavor? I've even heard people say, why should we pray for God to send revival? Why should we pray for people to be saved when we should just be praying for God to bring swift judgment upon this world? And it sounds so spiritual, but these are people who use what they would see as prophetic insight to neglect the main trunk of the Christianity tree. They're so busy with this branch over here, they can't see the main part. And we talked about this a lot, didn't we, as we went through these books. Paul was saying, anybody that says, well, the end is near, therefore I don't have to do what God told me to do, you could almost call them a false prophet, because that's the exact opposite of what Jesus told us to do. The Bible says, as we see the day approaching, we ought to all the more be doing what God has called us to do. Anybody who says, well, the rapture is coming soon, therefore we can just kind of sit back and wait. I don't think you understand. I'm talking about the end of the world and everybody around you is going to be consumed with fiery heat. Doesn't that make you want to get out and get the gospel out? Don't you want to be found exhausted when Jesus comes back? Peter says, since we know these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of men ought we to be? First John says that we should live our lives in such a way that we need not shrink from him in shame at his coming. But there are folks that will do this, and they're all online. Well, there's nothing left but the return of Jesus, so might as well just sit back and wait, relax and be raptured. Even some of the, uh, some of the great men of God around the post-Reformation, they had this idea that, well, obviously the Catholic Church was the great harlot of Babylon, and she has fallen. America is the new kingdom, therefore, why are we worried about this stuff? We're already in the end game now. It's not going to be long. The church had the same idea when Constantine gave the Edict of Milan. See, Rome, the Roman Empire, has become Christian. Therefore, it's just a matter of time, and the church got lazy. And that's not biblical at all. As Paul says, none of these things are in accord with the tradition that you received from us. 
idleness, laziness, sloth. We could throw gluttony in there. None of these things are godly. Whatever your excuse is, it's not godly. Colossians 3, verses 23 and 24, you know these verses. Paul said this. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for me, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Work heartily. What does that mean? Put your heart into it. Work hard at everything that you do, like you're doing it for Jesus, because as he says in verse 24, you are doing it for Jesus. I had to have this conversation with my sons lately because they're going to their baseball practices, and you know how it is. They're little kids. The sun gets hot. They've been running around, and I don't want to go back. I said, no, you're going to go out there, and you're going to do your best because you're not doing it for them or for me or for yourself. You're doing it for the Lord Jesus Christ, that your life that God has given you, this short life, is meant to be lived to the fullest. John 10.10, 10, that abundant life. Work hard. It's a bad testimony for Christians to be slackers. So we're not only to avoid these things, we're not only to pursue the opposite, which we're going to talk about in a minute. This verse tells us that the church ought to enforce it on one another. You see that? Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. The church is to correct one another in these things. That when we see each other walking in these kinds of idleness, laziness, when someone comes in and talking about how they refuse to put forth any effort at their job because their boss is a jerk, we ought to correct one another in that. When we notice that somebody who is in the fellowship with us is not putting forth any kind of effort to develop their spiritual walk, we ought to gently ask them what's going on. Home fellowships are perfect for this. When you start to get a flavor for how someone is living and maybe somebody comes to church and tries to do everything right at church, but then they go home and their life is one of laziness and sloth. This is where the, the mature and the church ought to go to them and say, listen, you're trying to get over this sin, but really your problem is that you're lazy and you don't put forth effort in anything. I found a lot of sins can be solved by getting over laziness because it's hard to tell yourself no when you tell yourself yes all the time. huh? Fasting can help with this too. So now that we know what the issue is, this idleness, this disorderliness, Paul is going to show us instead what we ought to imitate. So let's go away from what we shouldn't do. Let's move on to what we should do at verses 7 through 10. For, which is an explanatory word, keep away from those folks. For, because you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. That's in your Bible. So instead of idleness or disorderliness manifesting itself as laziness, the authors refer to their own example for imitation. We talked about this in the last book an awful lot. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9 describes their attitude when it says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. That's what they did in Thessalonica. They worked night and day so that they did not need to receive financial support from anyone in the church. Now, Paul made this his practice, that when he went into a new place, he would not accept financial compensation. When he was planting the church, he did not want 
their money or their support. Instead, he would work. He was a tent maker. He would make tents like Priscilla and Aquila to support himself. As a good example, he was trying to show them this is what a Christian life is. It's a hard-working life. That if God is real and Jesus has died on the cross, it ought to make us hard-working people. And to be clear, as he says here in verse 9, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you an example. There would be nothing wrong with Paul and his co-workers being supported by the church. Paul says, this is my loving choice to adorn the gospel a little bit more. The same reason Paul did not take a wife, although he certainly had the right to take a wife. He said, I don't want anything to hinder my ministry, even though great men like Peter, of course, had wives, and there's nothing wrong with that. He explains it further in 1 Corinthians 9. In the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I, he says, have made no use of any of these rights. Nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. So he says, it is biblical and godly and right for ministers of the gospel to be supported financially by that ministry. Paul, though, says, I have chosen not to do that because I want to set an example not of being unwilling to take money, but of showing everybody what hard work looks like. For my own part... Before Calvary Chapel Trustville was able to pay me and to bring me on full-time, I worked hard to support my own family. I worked for 1-800-GOT-JUNK. I drove one of those trucks. I went around to people's houses and I cleared out their stuff. I went to businesses and cleaned out their dumpsters. I went into people's basements and attics and they said, I don't know what all is down there, but get as much as you can and fill up two trucks and then I'll pay you. I went into the landfill six or seven times a day. I worked long hours, I worked hard, I got injuries, all the rest of it, because the church was not ready to support me yet. And even when we got to a place where the church could have supported me, there were other priorities that we had ahead of time. So I'm not boasting about myself, I'm showing you that this is an example that we all ought to imitate, that I myself have imitated. After I finished working there, I worked for a radio station for a little while, and then Catlin worked for a little while while I took care of the kids, and now, graciously, we are more than able to support me in this work, and that's what we're doing, and we should be happy and proud of that. But this is what Christianity is. Not being too prideful to work, not being too lazy to put forth effort, but willing to do whatever it takes in order to accomplish the work that God has given you to do. Christianity is not a slacker's religion. You should hear that. We don't believe in slacking off in the church. In fact, look at verse 10. This is a rather strong word. For anybody who is not willing to work, let him not eat. That sounds harsh, doesn't it? And primarily, of course, this refers to support from the church here. If you're not going to work, Paul says, the church should not support you. He's saying, don't come to the church asking for money to pay your rent or to pay your bills if you're not working. If you're not putting forth effort to support yourself, there's another verse that I didn't put in the slides, but the Bible says that a man who does not support his own family has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ooh, how about that? Denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever if you refuse to support your family. So certainly the church should not support idle people. Even in 1 Timothy chapter 5, when it talks about the widows that they would support, 
Paul gave some examples of the widows that should not be supported. And one of the things he said is, if she's still young enough to get married and have children, she has no business being supported by the church. And even so, if she's not set a good example of a Christian woman and a godly, hardworking person, she doesn't deserve the support of the church either. And there are some people that make a living, and I mean a living, out of guilting churches into giving them money. And once you've worked on staff at a, at a church of any kind of size for a while, you learn real fast not to feel too bad for anybody coming in. Because there are people that want to come in and ask for help and ask for money, and I know all the stories. Everybody's got a prescription that needs to be filled. Everybody's car just happened to break down in our parking lot. Everybody's got a little kid who can't pay for their lunch money tomorrow. And usually the first question is, where do you go to church? Because you don't come here, so I don't know you, so who's your pastor? And sometimes you call the pastor and they say, do not give that woman one nickel. <laughs> She's taken a lot of money from us and taken us for a ride. And you can always tell a person who is not worthy to be supported when you tell them no and they get angry. I mean, think about yourself. If you needed to come to a church, especially one that you didn't go to, and ask for help, ask for financial support, I think of myself, that, I, I might need to wear a hat just so I can have it in my hands, right? You come forward and you, if it's too much trouble, please, just this is what I need. We're having some trouble. And if they say no, you're not going to get angry. You're going to say, look, I understand totally. I'm out of here. But the person that goes, well, you're a bunch of hypocrites then. Don't you know that this is what's going on in my life? You, you hate homeless people. That's your problem. And people want to throw up gender, you hate women, they want to throw up race, you hate Mexicans, you hate black people, whatever it is. It, because they're trying to manipulate you. And that kind of person deserves nothing from the treasury of the saints, I can tell you that much. Now, there are, of course, people that come to churches and need help. And the people that do, you can tell. God gives you discernment. And sometimes it's better to be defrauded than to be stingy. But what we're learning from this passage is that God's primary means of providing for his people is work. Say, God, provide for me. Okay, get to work. Where are you working? How many jobs do you have? Sometimes the fact is we're working hard at our one job, but we, we clock out the second we're allowed to clock out, and we go home and we start playing video games again, or whatever your thing is. Work is God's primary means of providing for us. It predates the fall. Work was there before sin. Adam was placed in the garden to work the garden. So the idea that work is a result of some kind of catastrophe is not the case. Now God said in Genesis 3 that your work will be harder after the fall and that sometimes you'll put forth all the effort you want and it's not going to work for you. And that does happen. Let's not be Let's not be cruel here. There are some people that work harder than anybody else, and they've caught nothing but bad breaks. They maybe are surrounded by people that are manipulating them and oppressive, and there are bad bosses, and there are people that come into their lives and manipulate them and take their money, and we ought to feel bad for people like that. But all those forms of laziness we just looked at are sinful, and such people ought not to be rewarded for such sin. And I realize that I'm treading awful close to sacred political ground here. So let's see how we can apply this socially. Because we have these debates in our country, don't we? Seems like it's been a while since we had this one, but what does a country do with folks that cannot provide for themselves? I'm just going to lay out a couple principles that you can pray through and discuss later. First of all, we must know that God expects his people to make provision for the poor and the destitute, that is expected of God's people, even and especially at a governmental level. 
In Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 and 10, the Lord told the children of Israel, Do not harvest your fields all the way to the edges and in the corners. And do not take all of the grapes off the vine. He says, Leave those for the poor and the sojourner. Sojourner would be somebody who is not a citizen in your country. He said, leave something so that they can be provided for. When there were feast days, they were required to find the people that had nothing and give them something to celebrate with. So we have programs in our country that are financial safeguards. They're all kind of under that catch-all name of welfare, but there are important safeguards. And a society as wealthy as ours, it would, it would be shameful for us not to make adequate provision for those who are poor and destitute among us. It is absolutely biblical for God's people to have compassion for those in poverty, not disdain. So that's principle number one. Principle number two is where we apply this verse. It is not shameful to need help, but it is shameful to abuse the help that is given. So rule number one, make provision for the poor. Rule number two, do not abuse that provision. People who take government or church or neighbor's money that's supposed to be used for food or for rent or for student loans, and they go and they spend it on their own pleasures, as the Bible would say, or they have no intention of paying it back. My wife used to work in the financial aid department of Liberty University, and there were people that would call in scamming the system because they knew they could get $50,000 in student loans with one phone call, and they would just have $50,000 and never go to school. And you know who it was most of all who did that? Old people. People who were past retirement. Maybe their Social Security wasn't doing it for them. They would go and take out these enormous loans because they knew that before it comes due, I'm probably not going to be around. This was a problem that happened all the time. There are even certain zip codes that were automatically flagged for fraud because there were these scam rings that would go around telling people how to game the system. That's shameful. And you know something else? There is nothing shameful about taking support when it is offered and when it is available to you. So if you ever lose your job or if you ever are having trouble with your, your bills, don't ever be ashamed of taking the support that is put in place. God had Israel put those things in place. But here's something else to remind you. Romans 13, 8, the Bible says, Owe no one anything except to love them. The Bible tells us that we as Christians should do our best not to be dependent upon anybody else except the Lord. So what concerns me sometimes is when there are Christians whose entire income and entire provision for their whole life is dependent upon the government or a church or a ministry or a family. And what you have immediately done is you have put yourself at the mercy of that group or that organization. And hopefully nothing bad ever happens. But what happens if, God forbid, some evil ruler, government were to get into place and they were begin to say that if you believe such and such or you go to a church that believes X, Y, or Z, then we're not going to permit you to receive government assistance. Now all of a sudden you're in trouble because where is it going to come from? So we ought to work as best we can to be supported by ourselves and by the Lord. So we should provide for the poor, both in the church and I believe socially as well, but we also need to make sure that that is not abused. And there is always a lively debate in the United States of America over how best to do this. I'm, you know what, have your own opinion on that. Just remember what the word says, and, and we always want to, I think, err on the side of compassion, don't you think? 
I also want to throw one thing out there because this is new, and I think this probably will not have a very long life, but I'm going to go ahead and address it. It's related to what we talked about last week. This whole idea of working hard, if anyone's not willing to work, let him not eat, this is very often today called the white work ethic. Have you heard this? The idea of working hard and earning everything that you get is accused of being imperialist and colonialist and that this is the way that white people do it and they're trying to make everybody else do it and that's how they got the slaves to work and that's how they got the Indians and blah, 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 you've heard the whole story. I think we ought to dispense with that and you should not give that any kind of credence. You're reading it right here in your scripture. Open up the book of Proverbs. Look what Jesus said. Look what the apostles said. This is not a white thing. This is a Christian thing. And you know that the Bible was not written by white people. This is so funny when you say that Christianity is a white or even Western religion. It's not. It's a Middle Eastern religion. And people, don't you love it? People try to throw that in your face. They say, well, you know, Jesus was Jewish, right? Like, yeah, I, I did, in fact, know that, believe it or not. And, you know, they said, well, you know, Jesus probably wasn't blonde haired, blue eyes. I'm like, yeah, we know that one, too. We also know that the center of the Christian religion was in Africa for centuries. Then it was in Rome, and then it spread, and now it's in the United States primarily. But even that is changing, and it's moving to places like Brazil and, and Africa and, and uh, China, South Korea. We have no problem with any of that. But they're all learning the same thing because they have the same Bible. I also think it is repugnant to attribute any sin to a person's ethnicity. Because what are you saying when you say that? You say, listen, that, that whole work ethic thing, the Protestant work ethic is, is, is whiteness. It's like, so then are you saying that somebody who is not white is naturally lazy? That sounds more racial than anything I was saying a minute ago. Or when you say that uh, they, they can't help themselves because that's the way their culture is. I, I, I refuse to accept that. And I think that's awful. They say, well, you just don't understand that, that that's not the way they were raised. What you're saying is you don't understand. Black people are lazy. You don't understand. Mexicans are lazy. Chinese people are this or that. And like, that, so I think it's... it's repugnant and sinful to do that kind of thing. And we ought not to accept that kind of argument. We're looking at what the Word of God says. And I don't really care what my culture says. In fact, we spend an awful lot of time around here attacking where our culture is wrong, don't we? So don't let anybody put a trip on you. Being a Christian is about working hard. Why? Can we, can we examine why for a second? This is pretty cool. Because being a Christian fills your life with hope. You know that your life has purpose, that it has meaning, that you were created, as the Bible says, fearfully and wonderfully knit together in your mother's womb by the hands of God himself. And that though your life is broken and hurt by sin, at the other end of the road, you have heaven waiting for you, where you're going to spend eternity with the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Bible says, redeem the time. Why wouldn't you want to make this life as wonderful as you can and work as hard to do the best that you can? To live that abundant life that Jesus promised us. If you believe that life has no purpose, why would you work hard? If you believe that your karma has dictated that this is the life you've got to live, maybe it's wrong to work hard. If you believe that the system is so broken that nobody can ever get a leg up, why would you work hard? But we're not working for the system. We're working for Jesus. So that's why Christians are hardworking, because we believe there's a reason to work hard and that we can improve our lives and that we can be sanctified. And that even if it all fails financially, we're laying up treasures in heaven that are going to last forever, where moth and rust cannot destroy and the thief cannot break in and steal. It changes the way you work, both in the quality of your work, 
how much you do, how hard you work, and in the character. You're not a grumbler when you work. You don't show up with a chip on your shoulder snapping at everybody. Proverbs 13.4. I had to restrict myself to two Proverbs today because there's so many that talk about this. But the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Craving, wanting it. But I want it. But you're not willing to put the time in. A lot of people, and listen, I'm a musician. I know musicians. We love writing songs about, I'm desperate for the dream, and I'm going to finally get on top. And there are those that have that attitude, and therefore work 80 hours a week to perfect their craft and improve their songwriting and get out on the road and do what they got to do. And then there's others that go to the shows that other people are doing and talk about, someday I'm going to be great. Craving doesn't get you anywhere. It's work, hard work, diligence. Whatever was going on in Thessalonica, the antidote to that, Paul says, is peer pressure. Pressure them to work hard and to represent Christ well in the workplace and in the home. Verses 11 and 12 now. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. There it is. Not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. Now the authors explain why idleness is attached to disorderliness. Because if you are idle and lazy, you become a meddler. You become a busybody. And there's a great play on words here that the ESV does an outstanding job of translating. Not busy at work, but busybodies. There are two Greek words here that also give a play on words. So he says, not ergazamenus, but peri ergazamenus. They add peri to the beginning of that word. So ergazamenus is like ergonomic, is like energy. It means to work. And peri means about or around. It can even mean outside. So working outside of what is your business. So he says, yeah, you're working, but you're not working on what belongs to you and what you ought to be working on. Not busy, but a busy body. When we have nothing better to do, we start looking for trouble in other people's lives. And can you see how that could become disorderly? Idle people that have nothing going on start looking over the neighbor's fence and checking people's Facebook pages and asking tricky questions and harassing the wait staff at their favorite restaurant. Busybodies. This is what Paul said about the widows when he was, again, talking about whether they should be supported by the church or not. 1 Timothy 5.13 says, Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. You ever seen the music man before? This is the pick a little, talk a little song. These are the ladies that have nothing going on except they get together. And it's funny, they give them those enormous hats. They're supposed to look like hens clucking together. And they sing that song, picking at everybody, talking about everybody. That's what he's talking about. People who are idle start going out from house to house looking for something to make their life interesting. You ever know somebody that creates drama when there's no drama, they usually announce themselves by saying how much they hate drama. <laughs> they become busybodies. Every kind of laziness we looked at leads to insolent meddling. So let's run through this list again. How does personal laziness make you a busybody? Well, when you refuse to fix yourself, you start looking for people to fix. And you can become critical and overbearing toward them. You meet these people at the soccer field with your kids. You meet them backstage. 
You meet them wherever they are pushing their children to work hard and do everything they know they're supposed to do. Meanwhile, they very obviously have not taken any care of themselves and are not doing anything in their own lives. That is becoming a busybody because you are personally lazy. You start looking for people. And oh, sometimes it comes across as so helpful. Let me take care of that for you. Let me help you with that problem. Hey, you call me anytime and we'll talk about this. And it might be good advice, but you might say to yourself, why don't you do a little bit of that for you? And husbands and wives ought to help one another with this. When we see our wives or our kids or our husbands engaging in this activity. Number two, professional laziness. How does that make you a busybody? When you've got nothing going in your job, rather than try to fix that, you will find a different domain and try to dominate that. You meet people like this in church. They have their ministry and no one else is allowed to touch. These are the kind of people who volunteer to become the president of the homeowners association. <laughs> they want to tell you that your grass is one eighth of an inch too long. And you, and you think to yourself, why do you care? Because there's nothing else going on. Because they can't get it going in this place or that place over there. So we're going we're gonna to get in this domain, the ball field, whatever it is, and we're going to dominate that. Number three, prideful laziness. Remember, this is the person that's too arrogant to work. How do they become a busybody? Well, they're an expert on why all life is useless. And they go out of their way to ruin it for everybody else. You find these people in the comment section of YouTube videos. You find people like this on Reddit. You find people like this ruining your kid's birthday party by telling them that Santa Claus isn't real. That's that kind of person. So why are they doing that? Because they think life means nothing. But if I see other people living meaningful lives, that kind of puts a pin in what I'm trying to do. So I'm going to go make sure everybody knows this. There are even television shows and, and artists and writers that will try to do this. Nothing matters. Well, then what are you doing then? Number four, pious laziness. The lazy Christian. They stride around the church doing their favorite ministry of all, supervising. They want to be in charge. They don't want to do the work. They want to criticize the work that other people are doing. They want to criticize every decision the pastor makes. They're the ones that write long letters to the pastor telling him everything he's done wrong. They're the ones that say, you know, I'm really concerned about her over there because she's really not doing it right. Butting in to people's lives while their own falls apart. You can always tell this because the people I have found in my life and ministry who are the most critical and the most obnoxious and the hardest to deal with, it inevitably comes out that there is some major grievous sin in their life that they're trying to cover up. Is that always the case? I guess probably not. But when your life is going okay, you don't feel the need to go around and pick at other people. Number five, pastoral laziness. Well, they've got their meddling all set up for them in their congregations. You get a pastor like that, that's only interested in controlling people. The smart ones and the spiritual ones leave. And the ones who are left are the ones that are willing to put up with that kind of thing. Maybe they're just passive. Maybe they don't care. And they're the ones that are going to be controlled by these pastors. The most controlling and the most domineering pastors are not in large churches. They're in small churches where there's like 15, 20 people. And we're a small church, so I'm not coming down on that. But I'm saying the, 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 the church shrivels to where the only people that are left are the ones who will put up with this guy. And number six, prophetic laziness. People using the rapture or the return of the Lord as an excuse to stop working. You know what these people do? You know how they meddle? They become experts on who is and is not a false teacher. They find heresy under every rock. They expand the definition of heresy to not just mean a denial of the central tenets of the faith. They expand it to mean anybody who disagrees with me. 
They're especially, unfortunately, susceptible to false teaching for that reason. Because everybody in the church is wrong. And you become suspicious of everybody. And you won't go to church anymore because what if they're an evil false teacher? And even normal evangelical Christians that you should be benefiting from, you disagree on one or two points, therefore they're a wolf and I've got to avoid them. You know what you end up with? You end up becoming friends with other people that are just like that. You come up with your own weird doctrines and you fall away from the faith. Meddling other people. Someone says, oh, look at this quote from so-and-so. I love it. Well, you know that he's a heretic, right? Doesn't seem like a heretic. Yeah, well, you've got to watch these five videos that I found on YouTube that explain why he's a heretic. All six. You become a meddler. You become a busybody. That's how idleness leads to disorderliness. Can you see the connection? I love the admonition in verse 12. He says two things. What do, we, what do we do for a person like that? Maybe you're a person like that. Number one, work quietly. In the age of social media, it seems impossible to do that, isn't it? My, my mother is like, I don't understand. Some people, it's like every time they, they make the bed, they've got to put it online for everybody to cheer and celebrate and tell them how great they are. You know? It's like, I made a pie. Praise me, you know? <laughs> And there's a difference between, you know, just sharing your life and wanting everybody to tell you how great you are, right? There's a difference there. But what do you need to be so loud for? What do you got to be so obnoxious for? Work quietly. And if you can't enjoy something, unless people are seeing you do it, find something else to do. Because that's not where your heart is. You know, you know something that you love if you do it if nobody knew, Right? If you love music, you're going to play your guitar and you're going to sing even if nobody's listening, maybe especially if nobody's listening. If you would be like Emily Dickinson and, and write poetry, even though not a soul is going to see it your whole life, well, you're making these masterpieces. That's true love of something, right? should be the same for our walk with the Lord, right? If I'm the only Christian left, I'm still following Jesus. And number two, earn your own living. Live your own life. Delight in what God has given to you, not someone else. When you come home and you look at your house and your family and you just go, oh, I can't stand any of this. So you just turn on the TV and you watch for hours and hours until you get up and leave. But every time you go over to somebody else's house, you're looking at this and you're asking them about that and you're telling their kids what to do and you're giving them suggestions. Do all that for your own life. Go home and take control of what God has given to you. Delight in that. Work quietly and earn your own living. Earn your own living. Earn what you get. Don't you know that when you earn something, it just feels better than when it's handed to you? And when you're a kid, it's nice to get a trophy. Then you get a little older and you realize, but we only won one game that year. What did I get a trophy for? When you get a championship trophy, ah, that's something else. It applies to your Christian life too. It applies to your financial life and your work life. Earn your own living. And lazy people are great critics, aren't they? They're really good at finding out where everybody else is doing it wrong. Not to quote the scripture, but to quote Theodore Roosevelt, it's not the critic who counts. It's not the person who's outside telling everybody else what they're doing wrong. It's the man that's actually out there, as he would say, in the arena, doing it. There are so many people that want to tell you how every pastor is doing it wrong, and they've never stood in the pulpit once their entire life. They don't have access to all the information. They've never had to sit across the table from somebody who's been abused. They've never had to correct a dear friend who's going off into false teaching. They've never once stayed up all night praying and weeping for the people. And then they want to come and tell you what you're doing wrong. God is not glorified by your sloth and your gluttony. It's annoying and it's hypocritical. Time to take your days on this earth seriously. And I hope that's a positive message for you. 
Go home, as we say at this church a lot, we need to be life positive. Go home and love what you do. And if you don't love what you do, try and find something else to do. And if you can't, ask the Lord to change your heart and find a new reason to do what you've got to do. Here's the thing. There's always going to be people like this. Idle, disorderly, unruly people. So it's our job to help them. It's our job to correct them and confront them. But you know what else? It's also our job, as he says, to keep away, to ignore them, and not let them run our lives or run our churches. If you've got that one friend who's always coming over and telling you how you're doing it wrong, and the way you raise your kids is wrong, and the way you decorate your house is wrong, and the way you cook is wrong, stop listening to that person. Well, they're my friend. No, they're not, really. They're the fly in the ointment of the life that God has given to you. Well, I'm trying to share Jesus with them. Well, are you or are you just letting them come into your house and walk all over you? It happens in the churches. We should not let the most lazy, slothful, but loud people run the show. And by the grace of God, we will not allow that to happen here. Usually, if you confront a person like that once or twice, they'll move on down the road and they'll find somebody that will let them be loud. We can't let people like that have the lead in God's church. I'm going to end with one of my favorite passages from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verses 18 through 20. He says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting. So Ecclesiastes is all about vain things, right? What's vanity? What doesn't last? What doesn't seem fair? But here he says, this is what's good and what's fitting. Eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God, for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Isn't that a wonderful little passage there? Enjoy the life God's given to you. He says, work hard in all your toil under the sun. Make as much out of the life God's given to you as you possibly can. He says, and you won't much remember the days of your life. What does that mean? It means you'll have trouble and you'll have pain and you'll have trials, but they're not going to control your life because you're living in what God has given you to do. God's got a great life waiting for you. Take control of it by the Holy Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Work hard. Enjoy every minute of it to the best that you can. And if you've been walking in laziness, it's time to rouse yourself and get to work. See what your limits are in Christ. There are some folks that spend their whole lives griping and whining and demanding that people give them things, and they never find what they're capable of. The Lord wants you, by the Holy Spirit, to live that life, to work hard, and that we in the church ought to encourage and exhort one another not to fall into that same disruptive, unruly idleness.